0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. again In the Bible this morning, and as we take off from where we were last week, we want to start with verse 1 and 2, I think this morning would be appropriate. Uh, Lord willing, we'll pick up in just a moment with um, uh, uh, points, if you will, from where we left last week. But as we go down through Romans chapter 12, it really is a great motivative Uh, portion of Scripture to the believer. It really conveys to each believer this singular truth how God wants you to behave. That's an important thing. We live in a world system and a society and worse than all that we have a heart. Jeremiah said in the 17th chapter of Jeremiah that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We spend the early part of our years really trying to be ourselves to follow our ambition, to behave in accordance with perhaps the good instruction that our parents might have given us and those boundaries that society may place upon us. But in Romans chapter 12, the thesis, the baseline, the, 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 the statement that drives us home is, singular, is a singular fault. Romans chapter 12 is how God wants every one of His children to behave. And so we have entitled this some um, Beatitudes, if you will, to be able to minister effectively. The reality is there's only two types of people in the world. I'm not speaking of colors of people or intellects of people. I'm not talking about short people or tall people. I'm certainly not talking about Republicans and Democrats. When I speak of two different people in the world, Romans 12 identifies them. You've got God's people, those who by faith have received the gift of God, and you've got those that are yet dead in their trespasses and sin, they are not God's people. Romans chapter 12 is written exclusively to the believer. And he is or she is to conform every action of her life into these foundational verses to be the individual that God would have them be. Now let me ask you a question. This really drives home at the matter. What would be the great motive whereby I would surrender my individuality, whereby I would surrender some of my personality and temperament so that I would conform to the express desires of God. What would be the driving motive? Now, you don't have to guess. I'm going to show you. Look in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He said, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. That word beseech, if you write in your Bible, you circle it. It's really the idea of calling alongside Paul said, I'm one of you. I have experienced some of the same things you've experienced. The same calling regarding uh, salvation has been upon my life as upon yours. I have the same infirmity of flesh that you have. God has the same will in regards to my behavior that He has for yours. So He said, I beg you, I call you alongside, brethren. And notice this phrase. He says, I want you to circle it a moment. By the mercies of God. I'm going to speak for a few moments on the mercies of God. And because of these mercies, whatever they might be, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. How does the scripture say? Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Circle that word service. That's one of the greatest difficulties in the Christian life. We speak of temptation to sin. We speak of an adversary who roams about seeking whom he may devour. We speak about those that would uh, uh, be evil towards us. You might think of Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. But the greatest calling in your Christian life is service. The key to spiritual victory isn't really getting from God. It rather is having the propensity and the mindset of giving all to Him. But why should you give all of yourself to the Almighty God? You remember that phrase? By the mercies of God. The greatest driving force behind your love and service to God truly is what God has called you to do because it is what He has done for you. Are you aware of the mercies that God has shown to you? Let me give you a list of them maybe a dozen of them. That'd be a good list of them. Really, the mercies of God here, it refers to all of that that God encapsulated between Romans 1 and Romans 8. You've got eight chapters, chock full. Romans chapter 1, of what you were. And Romans chapter 2, what you were. Meaning that you were estranged from God. You were without God. You were guilty before God. Romans chapter 3, that... God died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 4, that you're justified by faith. Into chapter 5, that you have peace with God. Chapter 6 deals with sin in the life of a believer. 7 deals with holiness in the life of a believer. And chapter 8 deals with the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. Let me give you just a few of these, and I'll give you the verses for them. What tender mercies has God showed to you? Number one, I think about the tender mercy of His love. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, we know that verse all too well. If I had no reason, no reason whatsoever of submitting my heart and life before the Almighty God, if the only reason I had was His love for me, that would be more than sufficient. He chose to love me. He chose to die for me. I wasn't all that much. I was ungodly. I was without strength, had no ability to save myself. Feeling a much like Isaiah that all of my righteousness is as filthy rags. but God commended his love towards me. One of the greatest mercies that God has ever shown, and he has shown it to everyone from Adam's race, he died for the ungodly. Marvelous indeed, that is, the great tender mercies that the Redeemer, the diadem of all glory, condescended and robed Himself in flesh like a man and walked among us, and He that knew no sin became sin for us. What love is this? I think of John, the beloved apostle that walked with the Lord Jesus. In 1 John chapter 4, he makes this statement. And we love you. We love Him because He first. Do you remember? That's marvelous indeed. You didn't wake up on the right side of your bed this morning saying, I love God. Prior to your salvation, you might have had a rearing of things of God in so much that you looked at it and said, well, I can be appreciative of moral instruction. I can be appreciative of the maxims of scriptures. But that is not the same thing as saying that you woke up one morning and decided to love God. You love the Lord God. You do so because he first loved you. We had no concept of what love is if it is not for the, con- the, uh, the, the great glorious agape love that was shown to us. He made of his own heart and will. He chose to love us. That's one of these tender mercies. Let me give you another one. In chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, I believe it's verse 6 and 7. Yes, I like this one. Look at verse 6 and 7. He speaks about in verse 6 you being called of Christ Jesus or of Jesus Christ. He said, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, you're called to be saints. What's the next word? Grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize the grace that God has shown to you is marvelous. It's perhaps greater than our heart can truly contemplate. His grace. In the New Testament, there are two words. They're somewhat synonymous, though we see distinction in them. But there is gift. You'll find that in chapter 12 and verse number uh, 3 and 4. He talks about some of these spiritual gifts that are here. Rather, verse 6, Gifts. And then you'll also find this word grace, and they're synonymous one to another. To experience or to have the grace of God is the same thing as to experience or have a gift. Of course, the greatest gift that God has given you is himself. He refers to salvation five times in Romans chapter 5 as a gift of God. It's not by works that we receive salvation, lest any man should boast. But rather, it's by faith through grace are you saved and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Marvelous indeed God's grace upon you. If it were not for God's grace to send His only begotten Son to commend His love towards you and I, what hope would we have? Paul, seizing on this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, if that were the case, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You want to talk about vanity of life? the writer of the Ecclesiastes, he, he relates that narrative many times over its 12 chapters. All is vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, and vexation of spirit. He said, I got to myself joys, and I got to myself substance, and I got to myself wealth, and I got to myself entertainment, and I got to myself education, and I got to myself possessions, and I got to myself buildings, and I looked at all of these things and said that it's vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, vexation of spirit but God commended His love towards us. Marvelous the grace of God upon you and I. That He has called us sinners, condemned. That all I must by faith receive His marvelous gift and I am no longer of the kingdom of darkness but I am now a son of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I have the tender mercy of God's grace. I'll give you another one in chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm going to give you a couple of them. Chapter 1 and verse 16 he said I can be so thankful for the mercies of God or the tender mercies of God because of the power that salvation has. Look over in chapter 1 and verse 16. Chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul writes this. Consider this in your heart. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is. It's a singular sense verb there. It is. It is. It alone is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, and I have this underlined in my scriptures, to the Jew first and also the non-Jew, the Greek. You want to talk about transformation? You want to talk about a divine work in your God? You want to talk about a wonderful mercy of God? The power of salvation. It's transforming. It can take the vilest of sinners and make them a saint of God. It can take the condemned of Adam's race and calls them to be crowned by the power of God, and one day rule and reign with Him. That's the power of salvation. There's a lot of things we put our trust in. Government's not able to do that. There's a lot of things we put our our hope in. Money cannot make you a child of God. Governments cannot crown you a child of God. Education cannot exalt you to being a crown of God. But only and only through God's provision of salvation is there the power to make you redeemed and to be the Son of God. That's the tender mercy of God. Goes over on a fourth one. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Let's hold your place in Romans. We'll study through that a little bit this morning. Romans chapter 3 and 25. Whom God has set forth. Speaking of Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation, circle that word. It's one of my favorite, when I was in school, this one of my favorite definitions. You go to a lot of the Webster's Dictionaries and stuff and you look up the word propitiation. Let me give you the de- definition it's going to give you. Ready? It's deep. That which propitiates. I never cared for that. What does it mean? Propitiation deals with the mercy seat of an almighty God. It was the place between the wings of the cherubs. It was the place God was. It was the place that God's wrath was appeased through a sacrifice. Now you think about that. Here in Romans chapter 3, God hath set him, that is Jesus Christ, forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. You know what that means? God sent Christ to appease God's wrath. That's marvelous, friend. We talk about a tender mercy, we've got the tender mercy of God's forgiveness. That's what sets biblical Christianity aside from world religions. People talk about their religion. No other religion can bring atonement like biblical truth has. Every religion of this world, I don't care if it's a shamanistic religion like the Inuit people. Uh, and the indigenous people of, uh, of the, the north country have, like the, uh, as they're referred to as the Native Americans of the society, as a shamanistic religion. I don't care if it's a Buddhist religion. I don't care if it's a Muslim religion. In fact, I don't care if it's a Catholic religion. All religions of the world have the same basis. They're not really that distinct. They see that a high power, God, And they see themselves as one that needs to be reconciled to God. And the means by which an individual attains to some type of relationship with God is always manifested in every religion of the world, in every religion that has ever really existed in the world and will ever exist through what man does. So if man will eat a cow, if a man will give this sacrifice, if a man will do this or a man will do that, or they'll have this hope, this dream, this discipline, Maybe hopefully one day when they die, they'll reach the level of attainment and relationship with God. Every religion. Note chapter 3 and verse 25 Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. You can write this word beside that verse if you want done. Biblical Christianity ain't about what you can do to be saved. It's what God has done for your salvation. Yes, listen, the truth of the matter is, at the moment of my birth, I was estranged from my mother's womb. I went forth as soon as I'd be born speaking lies. That's what the psalmist said. I was conceived in iniquity, I was a sinner from birth. And then I was a sinner by action because as soon as I learned the difference between right and wrong, I natively and instinctively chose evil. There's no making up for that ground. I'll always be short of the glory of God. But God set forth Christ to be my propitiation. You know how much work I've got to do to be saved? It's shockingly simple. If thou shalt believe. That's the message Philip gave to the Ephesians of Munich. He said, heareth water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart. It's so simple. I receive the gift of God. What you do, preacher? Well, I can tell you about my... I got saved Valentine's Day. 1997 i remember walking in to my living room as my dad the night before all oh, the conviction i was under i loved basketball in my youth and i had went out sunday night after church and i had i had played basketball with my friends and i just i could care less about it i went home and thought about the fact that i was a sinner And I was hopeless. The next morning, I remember going in, I talked to Dad, and I said, well, you think about this, and it was probably the world's worst soul winner, actually. He looked at me, he goes, son, you know all the answers. How many times I'd heard the gospel. He said, it's rather or not you're going to receive it. At that moment, I bowed the knee. At that moment, I was saved. You know how I know I was saved at that moment? Because God said, if you would believe and receive, thou shalt be saved. Think about the thief on a cross for a moment. What did he do to gain entrance into paradise to be with Christ? What work did he do? Never been to church a day of his life. Never tithed. No baptism. Didn't know anything of the New Testament. Get this, he didn't even know who the Apostle Paul was. Had no clue what the Romans road was, hadn't been written yet. Said, Lord, remember me. And what was the Lord's response? This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's a tender mercy. God would have been holy and just if He would have said, I'll provide salvation, but you're going to have to do, 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 do. He would have still been just. But God in His graciousness finished my salvation. And I have forgiveness of sins. Not because He has just taken them away. He paid for them all. That's a tender mercy. Let me give you a fifth one. We have love, we have grace with the power of salvation, we have forgiveness. How about justification? You get to chapter 2 and verse 13, chapter 2 and verse 13, he, he makes a statement. He said, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified. This is pulled in context here. The Lord's talking about how someone comes to salvation. The simple fact of justification requires a declaration. You're not singularly just because you have simply obeyed, in essence. You have to be proclaimed as being just. The fact with the law, the fact with the law as is mentioned here it was impossible to keep the law. To be guilty of one point of law is to be guilty of all the law. But by faith in the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ, He has pronounced you justified. That's keen. He's pronounced me holy. He's pronounced me acceptable. Glorious indeed, the great God. Now here's an interesting point with his justification, and I'm getting off the path here, but once I'm justified, I won't be unjustified. It's forever and always mine. If I deny Him, He is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. I'm justified. That's a tender mercy. Number six, I have reconciliation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. I have reconciliation. I've been reconciled. This deals with an, an, a level of debt to credit and balance. It's a financial term in one sense. Back in the day, when you opened your first checking account, you made a deposit, and they gave you a ledger book. How many remember those ledger books? All right, we're not going to ask how many balance their checkbooks, but we'll leave that for another day. But you'd open that ledger book up, you'd put down your $25 deposit you made. And Then, as you used your checks or the ATM, you had debits from those accounts, and they were subtracted. That's the idea of being reconciled. At the end of the month, you would take your deposits, you'd take your credits, and you'd see where they balance out together. They need to match that which the statement of the bank for that period of time would say. With regards to you and I, we had a debt that far exceeded our ability to pay. But God reconciled us unto himself he paid for every sin I get this because this is so terribly important he paid for every sin that I had or will ever commit that's an important statement some have the idea that God paid for sins up to the moment of my salvation, but if I go forward in life and I sin more, I might be in jeopardy of losing that glorious gift. Friend, just a bit of logic there. When Christ died for you, you were not even born. From the vantage point of Christ's death for you, all your sins were in the future. He paid them for you. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, being confident... Of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I'm his. He has reconciled himself unto me. He has expediated all of my sins. He has removed them from me, the 103rd Psalm, as far as the east is from the West, so far are they removed from me. He is my advocate. He is faithful just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What tender mercies are there that beckon me to live for Him? There's the tender mercy of reconciliation. Let me give you another one. There's the tender mercy of a future glorification. In Romans chapter 8, great passages that are mentioned here as it deals with the Spirit of God in Romans chapter 8. And by the way, the Spirit of God is essential in the life of a believer. Without the indwelling of the Spirit of God, you don't have salvation. In fact, you pull your eyes in the early parts of Romans chapter 8. He talks about the importance of the Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God or the children of God. You'll find that in uh, verse number uh, 17. Drop your eyes down to verse 30. Moreover, Whom He did predestinate, then He also called. And whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. I marvel as I consider the great truth here, this great hymn of security that comes down all the way through verse number 39. He talks about not being separated from the love of God by death or life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Here's my point. One day you're going to die. And the hope of a believer, and I don't mean wishful thinking, so let me put it this way. The expectation of a believer is all predicated... the finished work of Christ. Because He has loved me, because He has died for me, because I have received the gift of God by faith, not by works, because of His grace, because He has pronounced me justified, when I die, I'm going to be glorified in Him. I will forever be with my God. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be that's your expectation. And that's an important expectation because um, we pray we got a couple more years to live. But you don't have to live long in life to understand some of the trials and sicknesses that occur. You don't have to live long in life to know disappointment. You don't have to live long in life to know pain, to know sickness, to know trials. And yet, in Romans chapter 12, he says we're to rejoice in our tribulations. How is it possible that I can rejoice in my tribulations? Because of the tender mercies of God. A thought occurred to me the other day. For the believer, this is as bad as it's ever going to get for me. That's true of you too. This is a If you're in Christ, if you know Him as your Savior, this is as bad as it's going to get right now. This temporal world that we see is as bad as it's going to get. Yes, there'll be some pain and disappointment and sufferings. But I can sit back and rest in the mercies of God knowing that one day I'll forever be with Him. It may seem that I've got grand losses on this side. But the real biblical truth of the matter, I'm on the winning side. One day, God will swallow up death in victory. One day, in the presence of my Savior, I'll sing the hallelujah chorus and my faith will become sight eternal. And 10,000 years will just be started. What a day that will be. Amen. I have the tender mercy of a future glorification. I will be with my God. Going back to John chapter 3, 1 John. Beloved, it doth not appear what we shall be. But when we see him, we'll be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I have a promise of a glorification. That's why Paul could say, or John could say, love not the world, and neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that of the father of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth, E-T-H, present, continual, forever and ever and ever. And you know what that means? This world's one day going to pass away, but my soul will be eternally safe in the presence of my Savior. Say, so, preach! you believe that? I expect that. If that doesn't happen to me, then all those that have preceded me and all the truths of the Word of God are vain. But is Christ risen from the dead? Oh, Paul wrote on that in 1 Corinthians 15 15. He said, if Christ be risen from the dead, He is the earnest of our inheritance. Just as Christ... Rose from the dead by the power of God and dwells in the presence of God, so I will as well in Him. I have the tender mercy of a future glorification. Let me just run off a few more. I'll try not to go into detail. I think I might have mistake, and I should have waited a point or two for that. Peace. I have peace. Romans chapter 1 and verse 7. Listen to this. Grace to you and peace from God. Our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you another one that goes with it. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Listen to this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have... Isn't that amazing? I start off an enemy of God. Isaiah 26, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. I start off opposed to God with no peace. But because of the tender mercies of God, one of those is peace. My peace, he wrote to the disciples, leave I with you, I give I unto you. Not as the world give, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. My peace I give to you. He says in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, bank on it. We speak of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, have peace. Oh, every great while you'll see the world and they'll flash the little peace signs. Oh, how wondrous indeed, peace, peace. The only peace this world can ever know is the absence of hostilities. That's all it could know. But the child of God, having been the recipient of one of these tender mercies, has peace with God. I rest in His presence. He and I are united by faith And because I have peace with God, God is no longer placed me under wrath, but I am now seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And because I have the peace of God, any trial and crisis in this life, I know the truth of Philippians chapter 4. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God shall keep. That's a military term. It speaks of guarding and defense. The peace of God will keep your heart and mind. Oh, there's a lot of Christians whose mind needs to be kept with peace. We spend too much being anxious for everything, fretful about everything, the child of God sometimes failed to realize that positionally, God is at peace with me. He's no longer uh, exposed his wrath towards me, it's been satiated. He's now at peace with me, and that very peace can be transmitted to my heart through trust in him. If your heart distraught, lead me to the rock that is greater than I. There are storms beckoning. Is the gale of wind blowing your vessel as it was the disciples across the Sea of Galilee? Oh, how that soul can run to Christ and say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Oh, Peter answers that in 1 Peter chapter 5. That very Peter that asked that question of the Lord, he was on that bark on the Sea of Galilee, on that vessel that was blowing uh, tempests and torn and and about to be uh, completely capsized and ran into the vessel deep and said, of the Lord, carest thou not that we perish? The Lord spake into the waves, peace be still. Peter later in life in 1 Peter chapter 5 addressing the overarching theme of suffering, would say in chapter 5, casting all your care upon Him. Why? He careth. Your Father in heaven knoweth what you have need of before you ask. My peace I give unto you. Give it not as the world give, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled you want to speak of the tender mercies of God, the indwelling of His Spirit that brings a complete restful peace. I have the tender mercy of peace. Marvelous indeed. Let me quickly give you a couple more. I have the tender mercy of eternal life. We think so often of John chapter 3 and verse 16. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but... Have everlasting life. I think of John 10:10, 10, 10, "The thief cometh not but to kill and destroy, but I am come that they might have life, and that more abundantly. I have eternal life. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 through 21, I have sonship. I very much like Romans chapter eight. He speaks of sonship through the new birth, but I also have sonship through adoption. That's, that's serious to consider. That's a writ of legal agreement. It is in most areas that adoption is an unbreakable legal bond. And that's how it is with God. At the moment of my salvation, He has adopted me into His very presence. I'll forever be the Son of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, I have his precious spirit within me. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, it speaks of this spirit praying for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 12 about the tender mercies of God. It's not a, just a broad blanket statement. It can be an itemized list of how God has shown favor to his people. But you do not receive these mercies of God simply by being a person. You receive them by faith in Jesus Christ. I go back to what I said at the very beginning. There's really only two groups of people. the sinners that have bowed the knee and by faith confessed Him as their Savior and those that have failed to do so. One group, those by faith, has an inexhaustible list of the mercies of God. And God beckons them by those very tender mercies to endeavor with their life to give themselves to these actions and find The great victory of service to Him and to those that have not professed Him as Savior, God beckons they do it before it is too late. Isaiah the prophet, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Chapter 1 and verse 18, chapter 55 and verse 1 come and drink. Come now while the Lord may be found. Seek Him while He may be found. For the day will come when the opportunity to receive Him has passed. And the next encounter we have in that next life that most certainly is to come is to stand before a great white throne judgment with all the heavens and the earth having fled away from His magnificent presence. And the books will be opened, and the book of life. And all those that have died, having rejected the marvelous gift of God, will stand before that dynamic, glorious, eternal present. And they'll answer a powerful question. What have you done with my gift of salvation? they'll attempt to adjudicate and they'll attempt to plea but they'll be found short of the glory of God and their future eternity will be in the lake of fire that burneth forever and ever. Oh in that day all oh, that day a tearful day all oh, that day A day that they could have never had. Had they received the tender mercies of God. Which group do you belong in this morning? let stand to our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 17112 and visit our website at www.sbbcpa.org. Until next time.